Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. Francine Duplessis Gray, who died on January 13, 2019, at the age of 88, was a writer of both fiction and nonfiction and frequent contributor to the New Yorker magazine. Born in Poland, the daughter of a French diplomat and Russian emigre from the Revolution, she was raised in Paris and came with her mother to the United States after the Germans took France. Her most notable book, Them, is the story of her parents' lives, and I had a chance to speak with Francine Duplessis Gray about that book and about her career on May 22, 2005. I'm Richard Walensky. My guest is Francine Duplessis Gray, who has written a memoir of parents titled Them. Francine Duplessis Gray has written several previous novels and is a regular contributor to the New Yorker magazine. This book is a memoir of sorts. While it deals with your life, it focuses on the life of your parents, your stepfather and your mother, who were extraordinary individuals. Your stepfather ran Condé Nast publications for several decades and was also a well-known artist. And your mother was known as Tatiana of Saxe and was a well-known stylist of women's hats. They both came from Russia around the time of the revolution, wound up in Paris, and had to flee Paris in 1940. Let's start by talking a little about the origins of this book. Now, your mother always expected you to write a book about her, but your your stepfather, not the same thing. Well, my stepfather, after my mother's death in 1991, he w- would always ask me, when are you going to write the book about mother? Are you, are you, you know, and... And I would be cagey because I knew already that I wanted to write a book about the two of them. Because you really couldn't understand her life or explain her life without doing this dual sort of memoir. And so I would say, well, I'm not got ready yet. I have to have more distance, you know. And so this went on until he died in 99. And then by that time, I felt ready to start in on this one. The entire history of your family is fascinating. Uh, your uncle Sasha was uh, an extraordinary artist. Your family has ties to Russian aristocracy. Alex's family has ties to, I guess, uh, up-and-coming Jewish world as well as gypsy world. And revolutionary. Uh, I mean, my uh, Alex's father, whom I knew well, who lived on until 1944, whom I loved very much, was a uh, in Menshevik, he was the only Menshevik in Lenin's uh, inner circle because he was the greatest authority um, on lumber. And lumber is traditionally the staple of the Russian economy. And on top of that, your mother was the great love of the poet Mayakovsky's life. Yeah. It was curious for me after reading that section that after their relationship, she remained a virgin. 
During that relationship, you yeah. mean? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That is an open question. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And, and I tend to think she did. Uh, she's very, very puritanical. And uh, I tend to think she was, she was a remained virgin until she married my father. But it's not important to me because I think what's important is that I think he marked her life more than any man. And I think she more or less came close to admitting that this was the great love of her life. One thing that this book does is it encompasses the entire, virtually the entire 20th century in terms of... And its cataclysms. And its cataclysms, sometimes very specifically in terms of the Russian Revolution, in terms of World War II, in terms of the style of America in mid-century as well. When you're working on this book, did you have any difficulty balancing the large and the small? No, that to me was by far the most exciting aspect of it. I think that a lot of uh, memoirs of parents are very kind of concentrated on the very saccharine details of day-to-day life, whereas I had the luck of having parents who, whose lives were completely formed and transformed by these uh, cataclysmic events like the Russian Revolution and, uh, and uh, World War II. For World War II, my own memories are very, very keen and extremely vivid. I was nine, but my memory starts very early. And as for the Russian Revolution, I've always read a lot about it, been fascinated by it. And I loved seeing the intertwining of character with history, how these characters were in part shaped by the cataclysms that uh, they had to live through. The second half of the book, which deals with your parents' life as successes and thereafter in America, you know, you're an adult, you have your own memories, you're a writer, you have your family's memories, you have all of these people who knew them. However, where do you get the information from the early section of the book? Not merely Mayakovsky, but also your family, its origins, because for a lot of families, that's shrouded in mystery. Well, my stepfather's father, Simon Lieberman, wrote a book called uh, Building Lenin's Russia, which is uh, footnoted in the book and which I quote from very often, published by the University of Chicago Press in 1945. And it's really a memoir of growing up as a child in the Ukraine uh, in a peasant family and then uh, being sent to school uh, near Moscow and then going to university in Berlin because, as you know, Russian universities under the Tsars were closed to Jews. So, I mean, that's one character which was completely documentable from his own writings. Then Uncle Sasha, who was a very fascinating painter and also an explorer who crossed the Sahara by car before anybody else did and then did another amazing crossing of Asia, He's documented in books published about these expeditions, which were all financed by the Citroën Car Company. And the Citroën has put up enormous books documenting every step of their uh, journey. But these are very unknown books. I mean, these are very specialized books, which you wouldn't find on every, every bookshelf. But I was lucky to have these obscure documents. And then, of course, there are a huge amount of family letters, which are very precious to me. You knew Sasha your uncle. He died when I was eight. And I remember going to his funeral. And I remember him walking into my nursery when I was a little girl. And he was such a legend in the family that he sort of lived on uh, for me. He, he, had the, he was swathed in the aura of legend that he, this is a man who had fought, as I thought, when I was seven years old, had fought with, with wrestled with wild beasts in the desert and had, had undergone uh, 
enormous hardships on its travels and survived everything. So he's kind of a superman for me. Your parents, on the other hand, it sounds as if to me that they didn't really talk to you that much about those early days. Your mother never talked that much about Mayakovsky, did she, other than in general senses? My mother, in general, is not a woman who liked to talk about intimate uh, subjects. She was, uh, an, uh, she was very puritanical that way, again, that intimate feelings must not be disclosed, to the point that uh, in the 1940s, after they had gotten married, my mother and stepfather settled in with me in a little brownstone on 70th Street in Manhattan. And uh, Alex was curious to know whether she she was interested in having a child with him. And he did not, he couldn't, he couldn't approach the subject himself. He had to ask a mutual friend of theirs to ask her whether she would be interested in having a child. I mean, this to me is amazing, a lack of verbal communication so intense that the husband can't even bring himself to ask the wife whether, he, whether she wants a child. So that, I think the central metaphor about this book is that I'm filling in the abyss of silence created by my mother. It's also fascinating that your stepfather had to go through this when he wound up being one of the leaders in American communications. And he couldn't communicate. Couldn't communicate with her. And also was very covert and very secretive about any crisis we have at home. I mean, the last 10 years, which I document painfully, was my mother's last 10 years when she was addicted to Demerol, which is, you know, a serious morphine addiction. I could not ever talk to him about it. I mean, he would just say, I don't want to talk about it. He would cut me off. And I had to talk about it with doctors who reported that they couldn't talk about it with him, that he said, let her stay at those levels. She's happy this way. You could not talk to him either about most important things when it came to a crisis. And they were very, they they didn't give me much time because, I mean, they were out for dinner five or six nights a week. And then on weekends, they played cards. So there was continued silence in that way, too, between us. And so I simply grafted myself onto other kids' families and had a very, very happy life. There's a, recently a memoir by a San Francisco wealthy kid in San Francisco, Sean yes. Wilsey. Yeah. On first glance, there seems to be some kind of parallel children of wealthy parents. But in fact, in reading your book, your parents were not wealthy. No, there is not no wealth involved at all because Russians habitually spend everything they make. So that even when Alex was had been chairman of uh, the Condé Nast Empire for for thirty years, when he died in ninety nine, his widow had to borrow money to pay back debts. I mean, there was about a thousand dollars in the bank. It's extraordinary. They just know how to spend. Russians know how to spend like nobody else knows how to spend. When we were living in New York in the early 40s and they were making pittances, my mother at Saks and my father at Condé Nast, still every once a week there were 80 people invited with vodka and caviar and guitarists strumming Russian songs. And it was the kind of the... The, the the most cheerful, legendary household in New York, and they were sort of symbols of New York hospitality. But that's that's the way the the the, the Russians are. Is it just Russians? I mean, let's move away from that it's in a particular. It's kind of bohemianism okay. too. There's a bohemianism. There's also a class thing. As I was reading your book, I was trying to get a sense of how come these poverty-stricken people from upper class some from upper-class society, they come to America and they're immediately, wham, even though they're broke, they're back in the upper class. 
Well, that has to do with connections. It has to do with charm. They were both people of enormous charm and magnetism, very beautiful, very handsome. They'd had good connections in France. My biological father had been in the, the diplomatic service, so my mother had connections to people like William Bullitt, who was an American, very important diplomat of the mid-century. And she had connections to a woman called Jane Grant, who was a widow of Harold Ross, who had founded The New Yorker. And we would be invited to her house in Litchfield for the weekends. And they had connections through Vogue, where my father was working, to a woman called Millicent Fenwick, who later became a famous congresswoman in New Jersey. Upon our arrival, these are sophisticated Americans who had traveled to France a lot before World War II, and they were there meeting our boat when we arrived. So I think there's something about connections in this intelligentsia. I think it's a question of intelligentsia, you see, not of social class by economic stratum. And I think the intelligentsia is always there to meet each other and to help each other. I also noticed two other elements. Your family tended to promote artistic expression even over making money, and that was something that you inherited, as well as the idea that whatever one's potential is, and it doesn't matter. I mean, if your potential is washing floors, if that's the best you're going to do, always go for the best in whatever that potential is and take those chances, which I think the middle class does not do. Yeah, well, they were both gamblers. As for the art, there's one very curious thing. I hate to hop back again to Russianness, but this is a really Russian thing, the adulation of the artist as a social figure. I mean, Alex's mother never forgave him, neither his father did ever forgave him for not being a full-time artist, for going out and getting a living. Now, can you imagine American parents? Where would you find American parents who so wanted their kid to be an artist that they didn't want him to ever go get a, a full-time job? I mean, it's just the opposite of our kind of, of expectations of our children. When he went to work at Condé Nast, his exchange of angry letters that I quote from his parents saying, you are an artist. You mustn't change your hands with menial jobs. <laughs> I can, it's kind of, you get a, get a, get a Condé Nast. It's, it's totally opposite to our sense of values here in America. Francine Duplessis Gray, a few other points about that. This sort of intelligentsia was the height of Russian post-Bolshevik society during the era of Lenin. And you go into that, it's something that we don't know about today. I mean, if we hear about, if we think about Stanislavski and so, it comes back a little bit. But those first years in Russia, before Stalin took over, there was an incredible artistic outpouring there. Oh, it was amazing. I mean, it was a very experimental theater, very avant-garde art. It was Malevich, it was Lisitsky, it was really the birth of a kind of futurism. And and it's not until the very late 20s that the regime began to crack down. Nenon died, what was it, in 25 or 26, I always forget. And then there was a triumvirate with Stalin. And Stalin gradually, oh, over a period of within two years, had gotten rid of the other two in the triumvirate and really took absolute hold in Russia in late 28, early 29. And from then on, all artistic experimentation was banned. It makes one wonder. I mean, the so-called communist experiment, which we deem now as a complete failure, it got untracked so early on that it's really hard to say what would have happened. 
Well, I think if Lenin had, had lived on longer and may, maybe managed to find someone other than Stalin to succeed him, it's possible, it's just vaguely possible that the future would have been different. But on the other hand, many biographers of Lenin find the seeds of Stalinist authoritarianism already in Lenin. So these are all speculations as to what would have happened. Uh, there certainly would not have been another popular uprising against any revolutionary regime because people were still glorying, the majority of people were still glorying in the overthrow of the the Tsarist regime. Francine Duplessis Gray, your parents wound up in Paris and you grew up pretty much in France in your early days. You spoke no English until you came to America. No. Until you were, what, 11 years old? Yeah, right. You say you have very strong memories of the fall of France, 1940. There's a movie not too long ago, Bon Voyage. Did you ever see that? Yes, I love that. I love that. Is that pretty much how it felt? Well, Bon Voyage romanticized it. I mean, uh, what it didn't show is the fact that my mother and I left Paris, uh, this kind of situation. My mother and I, which I described in the book, my mother and I left Paris two days before the Germans arrived, and it was this caravan of every possible vehicle that had wheels, I mean, prams and ice cream trucks and ambulances and fire trucks, people fleeing on, on anything with wheels. And it took us three whole days to get to a city called Tours, T-O-U-R-S, which many uh, on the Loire, which many Americans visit because it's the chateaus of the Loire, so famous. And that is usually done in a three-hour trip. This is how slow the communication was being walled in with mom in a car, living on the water and hard-boiled eggs that you'd brought from Paris and pulling up to a tree and sleeping, you know, for a few hours at night and getting on the road again. It was it was pretty, but I always trusted, I trusted her and she uh, she drove terribly and the, the car would constantly stall and she'd never been a very good driver. She'd only gotten her driving permit the year before. When we got to Tuo, it must have been about the 16th or the 14th, whatever. And a few days later, the, the Nazis arrived. And then we woke up one morning hearing young voices singing. And we rushed to the window. And my mother said, the crowds have arrived. The crowds have arrived. We looked out a window. And they're parading right under the the road, this road. We were staying in a beautiful castle called Villandry, which is famous for its gardens. Parading right down the road was this regiment of young German soldiers, their bayonets gleaming in the sun, and they were singing Lily Marlene as a marching song. song. That's a kind of memory. If you'd have had that memory when you were six or seven, you might uh, still retain it. Did you become used to extraordinary circumstances, or was it all still, I'm living in someone else's nightmare? My biological father, who was a great predictor of political events, a very brilliant, uh, trained at the École des Sciences Politiques in Paris, which is sort of you know, what we call Sciences Po, which is a, a graduate school. It's like going to the Harvard School of Government. Had a master's degree in that, and he was always predicting the future. And he was saying, in '38, this is it. The Germans are going to invade next year. Chamberlain Pact was an evil thing. By the spring of 39, I knew from him that war was coming. He was a pessimist and also a realist. And so he prepared me for all the events that were to come. And I was a very keen reader of history. And I sort of looked on it like, oh, I hope someone like Joan of Arc comes up. (laughs) Because he did, in the person person of de Gaulle, whom my father joined the day after de Gaulle read you his first appeal from London on June 18th. he gathered up a bunch of Frenchmen and went to join him. 
So I think if you live in that kind of very politically aware household where people are talking about what's happening in Vienna and in Riga and in Moscow and in Berlin and Paris, talking about it during car trips or family visits, you're prepared for all kinds of things. And uh, the French child... You know that you live in the country, you're part of the country which has often been invaded and often been in danger. And then you know from family conversation that the Nazis are evil. You came over to America and your parents had this entree into society and into the intelligentsia as you talk about. You met some extraordinary people. Marlena Dietrich was a member of your household virtually for several Mm -hmm. years. When you read other sources, say Maria Riva's book about Dietrich, when you read about these other people that you met and you compare your notes, is there a huge gap there? Well, there's a gap because Maria Riva was Marlena's daughter. Right, yeah. And therefore, the relationship <laughs> was, was rife with all the kind of tensions and anxieties which fill any parental filial bonds. I mean, my book is an examination of the complexity of filial and parental right, yeah. bonds. But she treated me the way many women treat their grandchildren, Marlena, even though I was Maria's age or maybe younger. But because she she was fond of me and there were no parental failure bonds to deal with, here was another darling little girl to spoil. She bought me my first evening dress. And then uh, on a Christmas night when I was sitting there with my bow and I was about 20 and my parents went out in their usual way to (coughs) a Christmas night party and Marlena said, these children are not going to stay alone Christmas night. And she called off the party and she stayed home to cook for us. Filet of beef and homemade lemon sherbet. And my then beau, who's still alive and with us, often sends me an email saying, do you remember that wonderful occasion when Marlena cooked Christmas dinner for us? He'd never get over it. So I saw that good side, almost of the grandmotherly or aunt-like Marlena, because there were none of those filial parental fictions. She did want to kind of correct always and contradict her image as a glamour and sexual icon by being the kind of down-to-earth housefrau. You went to her house, she put on a white smock, and she would serve your dinner. She wouldn't even sit down with you. I mean, it, it was at times kind of self-abasing, and it was a spectacle. I mean, she was a show, a show person, but she was a complex and fascinating figure. One person who does not appear in your book is William Sean. Was there any contact between your parents and him? None at all, because really? uh, they, they were not the typical New Yorker reader. They were fashion magazine readers. And I knew William Sean very well. He was my first editor of The New Yorker. He's the first one to buy my stories of The New Yorker. A wonderful man, a very deep man, a very shy man, reclusive, but never intersected with my parents' world. One of the things you were very careful about is you keep your own life out of it as you become an adult, which means that most of your rebellions are not in the book. But let's talk a little aside from the book. Do you think your political activism in the 60s, how much of that was rebellion and how much of that was genuine? Oh, no, that was that was absolutely genuine because, I mean, I had always been brought up as a Democrat. Even Alex was a Democrat. And actually, in 48, I think he voted for Wallace. He'd just been made an American citizen. And I was a senior at the Spence School in New York, a very conservative girls' school, where there was only one Democrat in my entire class. So when they asked the girls in social studies class to 
uh, write down their preference for president. And I wrote Wallace because Alex was for Wallace, who was a socialist. The other girls had never even heard of Wallace. So I always had left-wing predilections. I didn't so much rebel as set out to lead a life radically opposite to that of my parents. I, my first job out of college was on the night shift at UPI, which was then called UP. And I worked the midnight to eight shift. A few devoted boyfriends would <laughs> try to align their hours with mine. The 4 p.m. to midnight shift, and I was all, often the only woman on the shift, on those night shifts. That was very different from my parents' world. It was very politically involved. When I got that job, it was the McCarthy years. It was 52. Boy, there was a lot to write at night. Well, let me ask you about the McCarthy years, because it does not appear at all. Does that mean that in your parents' world, there was no impact whatsoever on of McCarthyism on their lives? I suppose, I suppose, may I remind you that my mother never learned English well enough to, to read an English newspaper. She got all her world news from the French periodicals and from the daily Russian paper of New York called the Novoye Ruske Slovo. My stepfather was a keen reader of the New York Times, and I'm sure that he was appalled by the um, by the McCarthy hearings, but I was living out of the house already, so I was not close enough to their feelings about the era. So it did not really intersect. I had my own private feelings. I was writing about them for UPI, but it did not intersect with whatever they felt about it. I'm sure he was appalled. I also uh, notice in your book, and I guess this is where the intelligentsia would differ from society people or the wealthy, where there would be a tendency toward homophobia or anti-Semitism. There were a lot of Jewish people in your life, and certainly your family was surrounded by gay people at all times. That was a very nourishing feature in my life. I mean, there was a gay couple, for instance, called Leo Lerman and Gray Foy. Leo Lerman was the features editor of Condé Nast for decades, and his widower still survives of Grey Foy. And they were like my mummy and daddy. I mean, that I would go with my problems, problems about boyfriends, problems with my parents. I would go running to them. They were like my second parents. If anybody within my parents' circles were second parents, it was this gay, gay couple. It made me so comfortable with the gay culture. It made me feel that it was in many ways much more comfortable to me than the heterosexual culture. And I always felt that the love in between homosexual men was much more kind of almost normative and much more solid than heterosexual love and much less flighty. Especially in those days, you had these very solidly grounded homosexual relationships that had gone on for years. And so that was a a, a big force in my life. As for the Jewish thing, my mother's friends were consistently often Jewish. And I think maybe that's part of being in the intelligentsia. She loved wit. She loved repartee. She loved cultivated people. And, you know, you couldn't find that in uh, 1940s America in WASP culture. This was still a culture. I mean, I remember the mothers of my friends at Spence who were quite right-wing in their, in their views of, of art and literature and that they had no sense at all of the avant-garde, the WASP elite in, in, in New York. Into, I would say, the 70s was radically behind the Jewish community in New York. And what my mother cared for was really was culture, glamour, and success. <laughs> which, is, which is kind of interesting because your, your stepfather did as well. And yet, at the same time, there was this leftist strain. Did, 
That came from his father. Did he turn to the right then as the 60s came on? No, he didn't like any kind of confrontation or any kind of exposure. He was furious, as I described in the book, when my husband and I got arrested in a bunch of Vietnam demonstration, anti-Vietnam in the 60s. Absolutely furious. He thought he was indecorous. He was probably against the war, mildly against the war, but it was indecorous to go and make a point of it. It would have been bad for his image at Vogue or at Condé Nast by that time. When my first arrest, I was lying in the Hall of Congress with my stomach resting on the shoulder of Richard Avedon, who was one of his photographers. And next to us was Felicia Bernstein. So, I mean, there was a lot of very well-to-do New Yorkers were getting arrested, but that did not intersect with my parents' world. It's still, I think it is, a kind of um, refugee mentality that I, we are exiles and we have to be proper Americans. It's the old story. And we have to be more Americans than Americans and uh, we have to be decorous. Decorum was a very important aspect of their lives. Did you know Leonard Bernstein? Yes, I, I adored him, yeah. Yeah, what was he like? He was very affectionate friend, very devoted friend, very intellectually curious. Uh, I'm sure hell to live with because, like most bisexuals, difficult to live with for a woman. But he had three children to whom he was devoted, and he was a huge amount of fun. He was hellish when he when he um, when he drank too much, which occasionally occurred. Once he uh, went to a party at the White House for the arts, one of those parties, you know, that was and he had on one hand he had his wife, on the other hand he had his boyfriend. He went into the main reception room and said, I think he had a bit to drink that day, he said, well, I've slept with every man in this room. Richard Avedon, who you mentioned, said, and this kind of came up just as an afterthought toward the end of the book, that your your parents hated each other. I think uh, Avedon was projecting there his own dislike of both my parents. And it was rather prophetic because he said this to me in the 19, late, late 60s after we'd become close friends, because we became close friends through being busted together. In the 80s, when my mother got sick, got hooked on morphine and so on, and my father was a caregiver and uh, refused to talk about her addiction to anyone, I think there was a lot of resentment on his part. She was a resentment on her part because he at that time began to get sick and have heart attacks. And she couldn't stand not being the center of attention. She'd been the center of attention all her life. And she would pull me aside. This is when he just had a massive heart attack and said, the doctors are all lying. He has not had a heart attack. He's just he's just in the hospital again for his diabetes check. He had diabetes for 40 years. And I couldn't believe my mother, who had been in real life so honest and so forthright, because she was, you know, she was uh, tempestuous and demanding, but she was honest and forthright. Suddenly lying, what drugs can drive you to, the kind of megalomania that drugs can lead you to, was a terrifying kind of transformation in her that any person who's had a loved one addicted should read this book because it's a very important chapter to me. Francine Duplessis-Gray, let's talk for a little about your own career. Now, you began writing, and uh, your husband, uh, Cleve Gray, encouraged you to write. You sent stuff to The New Yorker, and you had contacts. I had one contact. My husband's best friend was a man called William Maxwell, who's a wonderful American writer and was the fiction editor at The New Yorker. One day, 1963 or four, when I wrote a story about my governess and about my lonely childhood in Paris, I sort of sensed it might be the beginning of a book. 
I assured my husband, I always showed him everything that I wrote before he, he went out of the house. He said, I think we should send this to Bill Maxwell. And he sent it to Bill Maxwell, and Bill Maxwell called the next day and said, this is wonderful, we're going to publish it. And because the New Yorker sometimes takes a long time to publish things. It takes two, three years. You've got your galleys hanging around all that time. But it was published, you know, in the mid to or late 60s sometime, and that was my real start. Did that become part of Lovers and Tyrants? That was the first chapter of Lovers and Tyrants. And you began writing fiction and nonfiction for them at that point? At that point, I began to write fiction and nonfiction. Those were the, we came then to the Vietnam years, and I did a series of articles for them on the Vietnam. My first book, Divine Disobedience, which had to do with three different kinds of anti-war activism within the Catholic Church, the Berrigan brothers, if you remember them, and a man called Ivan Illich, and then a group of Catholic priests in Harlem, the whole thing was under William Sean was excerpted in the New Yorker. The whole book was. You were there then when when Sean was dismissed for Gottlieb. That was not till much later in the eighties. I'm not a staff writer. I'm just contributing writing. I heard about it the day it happened, and I was I was shocked and pained uh, for Sean. But Gottlieb had been my editor for my first book, and he had been the chief editor at Knopf when I published uh, Divine Disobedience. So I knew him well, and I got along very well with Gottlieb, and he published long excerpts from my book on Soviet women. He just reviewed me for the New York Observer, I mean, the most misshugginer review you can imagine, (laughs) two whole pages of the New York Observer, psychoanalyzing me to death, and I think projecting his analysis onto mine, or onto me, because I haven't been analyzed that much. I use a journal for, for analysis, and it's much cheaper. You saw the New Yorker go from Sean... Through all of them. ...to Gottlieb, to Brown, to Remnick... I've come to all of them with special projects. Tina, I knew better at uh, at Vanity Fair when I was, but but I did do special projects for Tina too. I mean, like when Princess Di was killed, I called Tina and said, you know, I've got many thoughts, and I started writing them down. And do you want something for the for the talk of the town? She said, yes, we have to have it, to have it in by nine o'clock tonight. So I just sat sat down and 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 wrote it. She was always fine with me. And then I went to Remnick with my project on uh, my mother and Mayakovsky, and he was very supportive. Well, I, I know that Tina's a friend of yours, but how did you feel about her tenure at The New Yorker? Uh, I thought it went too jazzy to Hollywood. I mean, she and she's not a fresh acquaintance. She's not a close friend. Uh, so I can criticize her for I think she went much too Hollywoody, much too shallow, and it lost some of the substance. I think the best balance it has hit is right now under Remnick. I think it's quite wonderful. It's an amazing blend of of art and politics and uh, shrewd editorials by uh, by Hertzberg on the political scene and really as good a magazine we've had and as, as good as a magazine has ever been, I think. How do you look at Gopnik's view of Paris? Is that similar to yours? It's hard for me, he, for me to tell because he's, he's a very, very close friend. I, I, I love the book. I think it has very much the feel of a foreigner's view of Paris. It's not my Paris because my Paris is something that I've known since I've been born. But I think it's a foreigner's view of Paris. I think it's, it's very and a kind of romanticized view of Paris. It's very close to the truth. Francine Duplessis-Gray, now when you look back on a book like Lovers and Tyrants, which is fictionalized and compare it to them, what do you see? I hate rereading my, fav- my my previous fiction. I just think it's sappy. <laughs> I won't. I won't. I won't tear the book out of any the hands of anybody who wants to read it. But and and women still still love it because it was it was a really feminist book at the height of feminism, and it was is really telling the girls, you know, go your own way. 
And perhaps, yes, maybe selfish, but you've got to determine your destiny. You cannot always be the handmaiden of a, of, of a male in your life. And I think that was the essential message. It was also a message of androgyny because I go off uh, in oh, my the heroine Stephanie goes off with a with a gay man. It was all kinds of things which I think I'd experienced from childhood. My strong feeling of identification with the with the homosexual community, and my sense of women having to be independent and leaning less on men than the average woman did. But that said, I like this book much, much better because it's years of wisdom and reflection. I think I'm writing better now. It's more dense. It's more disciplined. And it's really about so many levels of things which I couldn't have tackled simultaneously 30 years ago. It's about two family survivals through this cataclysmic century that the 21st century was. And it's about, as we said earlier, the complexity of parental and filial bonds. It's also about the cost and terrible price of success and glamour because my parents end up being very terrified people. They're constantly terrified. Terror rules their lives, notwithstanding their glamour, because they're, they're terrified that they are at any moment going to lose some of their power or some of their glamour. And then, of course, at the end, uh, this pathetic, uh, these pathetic illnesses. In retrospect, what do you wish you'd put in there that's not there, and what do you wish now was left out? There isn't a thing that I would wish to be left out. I think to be left in, to be, to be put in, only kind of minor uh, anecdotes that are not worth um, going into, accessory, accessory anecdotes. I think I really put in the main features of these two very glamorous and complex and perhaps tortured people. Francine Duplessis Gray, here we are 2005, and uh, we've seen a lot of political changes, particularly over the last 11 years. How do you think your stepfather would have viewed you know, the past few years from Clinton into Bush? I mean, if he were in his prime, not the Alex Lieberman of those last years, how would he have viewed them? I think he was too self-centered to have passionate feelings about politics. As long as everything went well at Condé Nast, as long as his deep friendship with, with Cy Newhouse was intact, as long as he had time to do his paintings and sculptures and run the, the publishing empire, everything was well in his life. Well, now for you as, uh, as an anti-war activist in the 60s, how do you view it? I think we're going through the worst political crisis of our history. I think it's the most disastrous presidency in the history of the United States. And I don't see how we're going to get out of it because I don't see any, any faces on the horizon. I, I don't see I'd be for Hillary if she ran in 08, but I don't think there's much of a chance for her. She has too many enemies. I mean, on a nationwide basis. I mean, where are where is the era of the great men who always seem to come forward in American history at the right time? Like Adlai Stevenson, even though he did not win any victories, he was a symbol for us liberals of some kind of hope for the future. And just working, working for him made us feel good. And Kennedy transformed society and Johnson transformed society. Carter was an example of a marvelous human being, at least. He became the greatest 
post-president, probably in the in the, in the twentieth century, he did amazing things with his powers as a former president. Where are the Carters? Where are the Adlai Stevensons that we used to have? Even where are the Lyndon Johnsons? I don't see them. Where are the dynamic people in the Democratic Party? It's desperate. Francine Duplessis Gray, what are you working on now? I am going to start working soon on a an 80th century biography of uh, uh, a person who was very close to Marie Antoinette and very prominent in the court of Louis the 16th. The 18th century is just what I love to work with more than anything else. I had the better time working with Saad than anything else, but I haven't been able to get to work in part because my husband died about four months ago. And um, you have to kind of, you know, resettle psychologically before you start a brand new work. Francine Duplessis-Gray wrote one more book after the interview, a biography of Madame Germaine de Stahl, a novelist and travel writer who lived during the French Revolution and the Napoleonic era. Them won the National Book Critics Circle Award for Memoir in 2005. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com. You can listen to other interviews either as Radio Walensky podcasts or in the archives pages of bookwaves.com. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast. <laughs>